I'm going to talk this morning about, um, we're going to actually going to watch a TED Talk by uh, Michelle Alexander, who's a leading thinker in uh, issues of race in the United States uh, from her, be kind of, she'll be giving some of the highlights of her book, The New Jim Crow, which is, uh, has made a lot of waves and it's a very provocative, compelling sort of storytelling. Uh, before we do that, I, wanna, I wanted to, uh, I want to kind of do a little bit of reflection on uh, kind of some, some of the, where we've come so far and maybe make some observations about our class. One of the things that uh, I love about Otter Creek is the fact that we not only are willing to have difficult conversations, but we actually encourage it. And that, for I would say for many of us, at least anecdotally, that's something a lot of us might not have experienced in other church settings. Uh, it's true, at least in some of my experience in the past at other places, um, wouldn't be as straightforward and as encouraging about having potentially difficult conversations. And I expect that one of the reasons for that is that Otter Creek has always been a place, I think going back to the roots of a lot of the people that helped start the church, <coughs> at least from the stories I hear, they were always very interested in Otter Creek being a place where religion was not separated from real life and that if if they were going to practice Christianity and I suspect I don't know I suspect you know as I heard someone say about Otter Creek in the last few days that, uh, that from this person's perspective uh, that Otter Creek is kind of seen as, as kind of a last stop in Churches of Christ on the, that train um, I don't know whether that, I don't know whether that's fair or true or accurate or not but it's um, um, I do suspect that um, to the degree that that may be true, uh, it means that for a lot of folks around here, there's a, there's a lack of willingness to practice a Christianity that's not real. There's a lack of willingness to invest much in pious spirituality that is not in real ways connected to the real concerns of life. And I'm very thankful for that. Uh, so then that brings us to kind of some of the discussion about this class that we've had this fall. I was, I was both uh, excited and reticent about the invitation that I was given to teach alongside Robert in this class. And I was excited because I'm, I'm typically excited to teach at Otter Creek because I enjoy it. I was reticent because um, I suspected it would be a challenging class to teach and that it would potentially um, cause difficult conversations, if not outright um, uh, conflict, and so I was reticent about it for that, that reason. And it turns out that my reticence was frankly not ill-founded. Um, it has been a challenge to teach the class, and moreover, uh, we've had a fair amount of conflict engendered by the class. But here's what I would like to suggest. I want to suggest that um, <coughs> conflict coming out of a class like this does not mean it's a failure, but in fact is a success. And one of the reasons I want to suggest that is because I think it's inevitable that whenever we talk about a subject that is so deeply grounded, so deeply rooted in historical, social, and personal concerns that are, are around questions of deep injustice, deep oppression, uh, deep historical sin, that it's inevitable that if we start talking about these kinds of things, it's going to be hard to talk about. And it's inevitable that we're going to see them differently and experience them differently and talk about them differently. We're going to have not only differing notions of solutions, but we're going to have differing notions even of what the problems are. 
and consequently, these things are difficult to talk about. Um, I had a seminary professor that I didn't, I didn't appreciate what a genius he was, I think, when I was a, uh, when I was an MDiv student because I was still a little bit too idealistic and a little too utopian and he would speak in very realistic terms that I didn't always appreciate when I was a student. But one of the things he used to say is um, to have less conflict, you've got to have more conflict. And I found that to be very helpful wisdom, right, is that a lot of times under the guise of Christianity we act like we have to play nice, but in fact oftentimes what that does is it stuffs down real stuff and then it comes out sideways. And that to have productive, vibrant, healthy relationships in a community, it means that we've got to take the stuff that's sitting there and face it and talk about it and deal with it. And so if we don't lean into being more forthright with one another, we end up stuffing down, pretending, and it makes a mess. So in the midst of these kind of difficulties, I, I wanna, what I just want to say this morning is important, I think, to remember that um, in the midst of those sorts of challenges, that we remember that we have a lot of common goals and goods together. Here's at least three. There's a lot more, but here's at least three in the context of this class. One would be uh, an acknowledgement of the historical sins in which the church in America, especially the white church in America, has regrettably not only participated, but in many ways propagated. Two, uh, I think we share in a common goal of a desire to make our own communities more faithful and creative in bearing witness to the kingdom of God, in which any and all forms of oppression and raci racism are vanquished. And three, an honoring of the varied personal experiences which we bring to this room together when we talk about these things. So in light of these things, I would suggest we keep listening to each other, we keep honoring each other, we keep learning from one another. We've talked about having these, to these toothpick moments, right? Where that, that awkward sort of social engagement, for those of you who didn't hear the analogy of the day we talked about that, you know, it, it's embarrassing to uh, have gone to eat lunch and then when you go home that evening at 5.30, you realize you, you've still got the food from lunch in your teeth and you realize that you sat through three, three meetings that afternoon and nobody said, hey, Lee. Right? Because it's socially awkward to say, hey, Preston, you got something in your teeth. Right? But the facts are that we, we realize that um, that's what friends do. You know? Because the awkwardness at 5.30 is that did nobody feel close enough to me to tell me that there was food in my teeth? Do I put people off that much? Or what, you know, what, is, what is that about? Uh, so the toothpick moments is, is willingness to say, hey, you might want to tend to that. Yeah, it's socially awkward. Yes, difficult. But it's what people in community do with each other. So we keep having these toothpick moments. We keep uh, trying to practice honoring each other, learning, checking our emotions uh, to see how, when we're together, we can best hear each other and speak to each other. So with, with that kind of, that kind of uh, preface, I'll say as well, I'll be around. If anybody wants to talk to me after class, feel free to uh, share with me any feedback on that after class. Before we move into Michelle Alexander, I want to do a quick review of kind of four theological anchors that I suggested at the beginning of the term back in September. The four were these, uh, that the kingdom of God is a real alternative kingdom to kingdoms of this world. 
It's not some sort of notion of religion separable from real life, but it is the reign of God on earth, where God's will is done on earth even as it is in heaven. Two, the church as a witnessing community, as a witnessing community to this kingdom, the church is to be seen as a viable socio-political alternative to the politics of this world. The church is political by its life together, but it is not partisan in being, being able to be identified with any so-called human political party, but it is its own alternative socio-political reality and entity. Three, the notion of the principalities and powers. That there are powers and structures of power at work in the world that are created by God for good, but rather than serving humankind, they overreach, and in their overreaching, they enslave and oppress humankind rather than serve it. Watch one of the opening lines. What, what I have suggested, um, and one of, my, one of my favorite kind of uh, soapboxes to get on the last number of years, is that Christians, in getting caught up in partisan political responses, forfeit what good they actually could bring to the culture in which we live. And I think the notion of principalities and powers is precisely an example of those things. And if you'll listen to one of her opening lines in this, she's going to say, it's so good to, be, to gather together with people who know that there is more to this world than meets our own eyes, end quote. And what she's doing is in her own kind of lawyerly way, uh, she is pointing to what the New Testament calls the principalities and powers, that there are these structures of power in the world, and, and what they historically do is that they overreach and they oppress and they push down. And four, we've talked about the call to personal commitment in, entailed in things like courage, entailed in things like speaking for justice. So with that, what we'll do is we'll, we'll uh, open it up to watch this video. Uh, I promise we'll be done by uh, eight till today. Uh, I would suggest for those of you who didn't, weren't able to be with us when we screened the documentary a few weeks ago, that if you want more on this, uh, the fastest, most compelling way to get into it would be to watch the document, as far as I know, is to watch the documentary entitled 13th. It's a very provocative, very difficult to watch, very well done documentary that will fill this out in much more detail. Her thesis is basically this, uh, that Jim Crow, the practice of Jim Crow, uh, which separated, was kind of a form of, was not kind of, was a form of apartheid in the United States. Her thesis is that Jim Crow was a racial caste system and it was a system of stratification whereby blacks are kept from full participation, full enjoyment of the benefits of the society. And then she says that mass incarceration works in the same way today, especially through the targeting of black communities, especially through the war on drugs. So that's her thesis, and so let's watch and see how she spells that out.
supposed to despise. People we're supposed to hate. People we're supposed to fear. People we are taught are unworthy, fundamentally unworthy of our care, compassion, and concern. I'm here to talk about criminals. And I'm here to talk about our criminal justice system, a system of mass incarceration, a penal system unprecedented in world history. Millions of people are locked up in the United States today. Overwhelmingly poor people and people of color locked in literal cages, often treated worse than animals, and then, upon their release, they're stripped of the basic civil and human rights supposedly won in the civil rights movement, like the right to vote, the right to serve on juries, and the right to be free of legal discrimination in employment, housing, access to education, and basic public benefits. So many of the old forms of discrimination that we supposedly left behind during the Jim Crow era are suddenly legal again once you've been branded a felon. That's why I now believe we have not truly ended racial caste in America. We've merely redesigned it. Now I want to just admit at the outset that there was a time when I rejected this kind of talk out of hand. There was a time when I rejected comparisons between mass incarceration and slavery or mass incarceration and Jim Crow and believed that people who made those kinds of claims and those kinds of comparisons were actually doing more harm than good to efforts to reform our criminal justice system or achieve greater racial equality in the United States. In fact, the first time I encountered the idea that our criminal justice system might be functioning like a caste system, I was living in Oakland, California, and I was rushing to catch the bus. And as I was hurrying down the street, there was this bright orange poster stapled to a telephone pole that caught my eye. And on it, it said in large, bold print, the drug war is the new Jim Crow. And I paused for a minute and scanned the text of the flyer and I saw that some radical community group was holding a meeting several blocks away and they were organizing to protest the new three strikes law in California, the expansion of the prison system, the drug war, racial profiling, police brutality, the list went on and on. And I stood there looking at the flyer thinking to myself, yeah, our criminal justice system may be biased in a lot of ways, but it doesn't help to make such absurd comparisons to Jim Crow. People just think you're crazy. And then I crossed the street, hopped on the bus, headed to my new job as director of the Racial Justice Project for the ACLU. Well, when I joined the ACLU, I assumed that our criminal justice system had problems of racial bias, much in the same way that all institutions in our society are infected to some degree or another with problems associated with 
conscious or unconscious bias and stereotyping. And so I assume that it was my job to join together with other advocates to try to root out racial bias wherever and whenever it might rear its ugly head in the criminal justice system. But by the time I left the ACLU, I had come to realize that I was just dead wrong about our criminal justice system. It's not just another institution in our society infected with some degree of bias, but a different beast entirely. The activists that posted that sign on the telephone pole weren't crazy, nor were the smattering of lawyers and activists around the country that were beginning to connect the dots between mass incarceration and earlier forms of racial and social control. Quite belatedly, I came to see that our criminal justice system now does function much more like a system of racial and social control than a system of crime prevention and control. Millions of children in the United States today grow up believing that they too one day will go to jail. In our most segregated, ghettoized communities in the United States, young people are shuttled from decrepit, underfunded schools to these brand new high-tech prisons. They're targeted at young ages, often before they're old enough to vote, stopped, frisked, searched, interrogated about who they are, where they're going, if they headed home with nothing but Skittles in their hand. Stop, frisk, search. And when they're arrested, they're typically arrested for a relatively minor, non-violent, often drug-related offense, the very sorts of crimes that occur with roughly equal frequency in middle-class white communities or on college campuses, but go largely ignored. They're arrested, swept in, branded criminals and felons, and then ushered into a permanent second-class status, a status from which they will never escape. And this is happening to people by the millions in this country. Today, there are more African-American adults under correctional control, in prison or jail, on probation or parole, than were enslaved in 1850, a decade before the Civil War began. As of 2004, more black men were denied the right to vote than in 1870, the year the 15th Amendment was ratified, prohibiting laws that explicitly deny the right to vote on the basis of race. Now, of course, during the Jim Crow era, poll taxes and literacy tests operated to keep black folks from the polls. Well, today, felon disenfranchisement laws in many states now accomplish what poll taxes and literacy tests ultimately could not. Now, this isn't a phenomenon that just affects some small segment of the African-American community. To the contrary, in many large urban areas today, more than half of working-age African-American men <coughs> now have criminal records and are thus subject to legalized discrimination for the rest of their lives. These men are part of a growing undercast, not class, caste, 
taken by race, relegated to a permanent second-class status by law. Now, I find that these days when I tell people that I now believe that our system of mass incarceration is like a new Jim Crow, a new caste-like system, people typically react with shock disbelief. They say, how can you say that? How can you say that our criminal justice system isn't a system of racial control, it's a system of crime control. And if black folks would stop running around committing so many crimes, they wouldn't have to worry about being locked up and then stripped of their basic civil and human rights. But therein lies the greatest myth about mass incarceration, namely that it's been driven simply by crime and crime rates. It's not true. It's just not true. During a 30-year period of time, our nation's prison population quintupled. Not doubled or tripled, quintupled. We went from having a prison population in the 1970s of about 300,000 people. Today, we have an incarcerated population of over 2 million. We have the highest rate of incarceration in the world, dwarfing the rates of even highly repressive regimes like Russia or China or Iran. But during this 30-year period of time when our prison population exploded, crime rates fluctuated. They went up, went down, went back up again, went down again, went up, and then down, down, down. And today, as bad as crime rates are in some parts of the country, crime rates nationally are at historical lows. But incarceration rates have consistently soared. Most criminologists and sociologists today will acknowledge that crime rates and incarceration rates in the United States have moved independently of one another. Incarceration rates, especially black incarceration rates, have soared regardless of whether crime is going up or going down in any given community or the nation as a whole. So what explains the sudden, unprecedented explosion in incarceration, if not simply crime and crime rates? Well, it turns out that the activists who posted that sign on the telephone pole were right. The war on drugs and the get tough movement, the wave of punitiveness that washed over the United States on the heels of the civil rights movement. Drug convictions alone, just drug convictions, account, accounted for about two thirds of the increase in the federal prison population and more than half of the increase <coughs> in the state prison population between 1985 and 2000, the period of our prison system's most dramatic expansion. Drug convictions have increased more than a thousand percent since the drug war began. I mean, to get a sense of how large a contribution the drug war has made to mass incarceration, think of it this way. There are more people in prisons and jails today just for drug offenses than were incarcerated for all reasons in 1980. Now, most Americans violate drug laws in their lifetime. Most do. You don't have to raise your hand. <laughs> most do. But the enemy in this war has been racially defined. Even though studies have now consistently shown for decades that contrary to popular belief, People of color are no more likely to use or sell illegal drugs than whites. This drug war has been waged almost 
where significant differences in the data can be found, it frequently suggests that white youth are more likely to engage in illegal drug use, drug abuse, and drug dealing than black youth. But that's not what you would guess by taking a peek inside our nation's prisons and jails, which are overflowing with black and brown drug offenders. Human Rights Watch reported at the peak of the drug war that in some states, 80 to 90% of all drug offenders sent to prison were one race, African-American. Now I find that many people, when they see this data, they say, oh, you know, that's a shame, that's a shame. But you know, we need a war on them, them in the hood. Because that's where the violent offenders can be found. That's where the drug kingpins can be found. But what many people don't realize is this drug war has never been focused primarily on rooting out the violent offenders or the drug kingpins. Federal funding in this war has flowed to those state and local law enforcement agencies that boost the sheer numbers of drug arrests. It's been a numbers game. Law enforcement agencies have been rewarded in cash by the millions for the sheer numbers of people swept in for drug offenses. Virtually guaranteeing that law enforcement goes out looking for the so-called low-hanging fruit, stopping, frisking, searching as many people as possible to get their numbers up. And federal drug forfeiture laws allow state and local law enforcement agencies to keep for their own use up to 80% of the cash, cars, homes seized from suspected drug offenders. You don't have to be convicted, just suspected of a drug offense. And law enforcement can seize the cash out of your pocket, out of your home, take your car, sell it, keep the proceeds, thus giving law enforcement a direct monetary interest, not in ending drug abuse or drug addiction or drug-related harm, but in the longevity of this war itself. And the US Supreme Court, far from resisting the rise of mass incarceration and the targeting of poor communities of color, far from resisting it, it has facilitated the drug war at every turn. The US Supreme Court has eviscerated Fourth Amendment protections against unreasonable searches and seizures, giving the police license to stop, frisk, search just about anyone, anywhere, without a shred of evidence of any criminal activity as long as they get consent, which is really just compliance. And for those who want to challenge the bias that is on full display in the drug war, the US Supreme Court has closed the courthouse doors. The cases that I was bringing challenging patterns and practices of profiling by the police can't even be filed in a court of law today. In a series of cases beginning with McCleskey versus Kemp and Armstrong versus the United States, the U.S. Supreme Court has ruled explicitly that it does not matter how overwhelming your statistical evidence is. It does not matter how severe the racial disparities are. Unless you have proof of conscious intentional bias, tantamount to an admission by a law enforcement official of bias, you can't even state a claim for race discrimination in the criminal justice system today. In this way, the U.S. Supreme Court has effectively immunized the system of mass incarceration from judicial scrutiny for racial bias, much in the same way that it once rallied to the defense of slavery 
at a young age with little hope of challenging the tactics or the bias that got you there is just the beginning of the odyssey for so many. Because once you're swept in, you're ushered into a parallel social universe in which the basic civil and human rights that apply to others no longer apply to you. For the rest of your life, you've got to check that box on employment applications asking the dreaded question, have you ever been convicted of a felony? Doesn't matter how long ago that felony may have occurred, months ago, weeks ago, or 35 years ago. For the rest of your life, you've got to check that box knowing full well your application's going straight to the trash. Housing discrimination perfectly legal by public landlords and private housing landlords and officials. Public benefits are off limits to people who have been convicted of felonies, like food stamps. Under federal law, you can't even get food stamps if you've been convicted of a felony. What are people released from prison supposed to do? Can't get a job, barred from public housing, private housing, even food stamps may be off limits to you? Well, apparently what we expect them to do is to pay hundreds or thousands of dollars in fees, fines, court costs, and cumulative back child support. And paying back all these fees, fines, and court costs can be a condition of your probation or parole. And then get this, if you're one of the lucky few who actually manages to get a job following release from prison, up to 100% of your wages can be garnished to pay back all those fees, fines, court costs, and accumulated back child support. What do we expect folks released from prison to do? I say when we take a step back and view the system as a whole, how it operates practically from cradle to grave in some communities, you have to ask yourself, what does it seem designed to do? Seems designed, in my view, to keep sending folks right back to prison. And that is what, in fact, happens the vast majority of time. About 70% of people released from prison nationwide return within a few years. And the majority of those who return in some states do so in a matter of months because the challenges of mere survival on the outside are so immense. So what do we do? What do we do? Well, my own view is that nothing short of a major social movement has any hope of ending mass incarceration in the United States. And if you imagine that surely something less could do, somehow we could tinker with this machine and get it right, consider the sheer scale of the system. If we were to return to the rates of incarceration we had in the 1970s, before the war on drugs and the Get Tough movement kicked off, we would have to release four out of five people who are in prison today. Four out of five. More than a million people employed by the criminal justice system would need to find a new line of work. Private prison companies now listed on the New York Stock Exchange and doing quite well even during times of economic recession. Those companies would be forced into bankruptcy. This system is now so deeply rooted in our social, political, and economic structure, it's not gonna just fade away or downsize out of sight without a major upheaval, a fairly radical shift in our public consciousness. Now, I know that there's many people today who will say, well, there's just no hope of ending mass incarceration in America. 
Just as many people were resigned to the old Jim Crow in the South would say, oh yeah, it's a shame, but that's just the way that it is. I find that so many people of all colors view the millions cycling in and out of our prisons and jails as just an unfortunate but basically inalterable fact of American life. Well, I am confident that Martin Luther King Jr. and Rosa Parks and Ella Baker and Ann Braden and all those young people who risked their lives getting on buses and taking freedom rides through the South to end the old Jim Crow, they would not be so easily deterred. So I believe we have got to pick up where they left off and do the hard work of movement building on behalf of poor people of all colors. In 1968, Dr. King told advocates that the time had come to shift from a civil rights movement to a human rights movement. Meaningful equality, he said, could not be achieved through civil rights alone. Without basic human rights, the right to work, the right to a quality education, the right to housing, without basic <coughs> human rights, he said, civil rights are an empty promise. So in honor of Dr. King and all those who labored to end earlier systems of racial or social control, I hope we will commit ourselves to building a human rights movement to end mass incarceration, a movement for education, not incarceration, a movement for jobs, not jails, and a movement to end all those forms of legal discrimination against people released from prison, discrimination denying them basic human rights to work, to shelter, and to food. But before this movement can truly get underway, a great awakening is required. We've got to awaken from this colorblind slumber we've been in to the realities of race in America. And we've got to be willing to embrace those labeled criminals, not necessarily all their behavior, but them, their humanness. For it has been the refusal and failure to recognize the dignity and humanity of all people <coughs> that has been the sturdy foundation for every caste-like system that has ever existed in the United States or anywhere else in the world. It's our task, I firmly believe, to end not just mass incarceration, not just the war on drugs, but to end this history and cycle of creating caste-like systems in America. Thank you so much for having me here today. Thank you. If you will, uh, pair up with somebody, not your spouse, real quick, and share one thing that uh, you learned that was compelling or provocative to you that you want to try to make sure you remember and take away with you. So 60 seconds each of you share. <laughs> Yeah.
Okay. We've only got about, uh, only got three minutes. So, uh, somebody share with us. Somebody share with us quickly something you heard that you want to remember. Justin's over here. All right, everybody, come back to us. I'm glad that you're talking. All right, if y'all will come back to us here. We got just a couple minutes, Justin. Um, really stuck, struck out, uh, stuck out to me when she talked about the civil forfeiture stuff. Um, that was something when Carrie and I moved into a pretty rough area in East Nashville. A lot of my neighbors talked about the police and like the mafia, which I was kind of like, that's ridiculous. But the more the more raids, SWAT raids that I saw that turned up next to nothing where the police left with people's vehicles who were at the scene with any sort of cash they found in the house, whether or not they could connect it to drugs. I really I started to see that side as well. And obviously there's nuance to that, but when when you're in a community and the police who are supposed to be the, the good people, according to the national narrative, are the ones that are showing up and kicking people's doors in and taking their stuff, like how, how is that community supposed to react to that? Are they, like, the, the only way that one can react to that is that these people are like shaking us down. Yeah, and I, th I think that that's one of the things that's, that has been so striking to me as I've started learning something about this is that um, with the move to privatization of prisons, with uh, monetary incentive for police departments or law enforcement agencies to do the stuff by which they profit financially, it's a huge, dangerous pool in which we've gotten ourselves that I think we're naive if we don't pay a lot of attention to that. Great. Somebody else? What did you hear? Quickly, 30 seconds. Uh, thir 30 seconds. Is, uh, I live in Baltimore for a while, working with the drug and alcohol community. And basically what the, the patients told me is that uh, Boston High School is one of the wealthiest high schools in um, Hartford County. 50% of kids were on heroin, were, were white kids. They would go into Baltimore, of course, they'd be protected, and the kingpins, in order to um, pay off the police, they may call the police on one of the cars, and you know they would get arrested, they would get keep their numbers up, and the kingpins can play off, pay off the police in order to have the uh, police part and part of the crime process while they increase their numbers by the kingpins given a few at a time. And it's, it's reality of what she says is that the kingpins are never touched, but it's the, um, 30 seconds. Yeah, people on, people on the streets. Thank you, Walter. I mean, I can't help but think what the, the story I grew up in of every day hearing you're going to college, you're going to college, you're going to college versus you're going to prison eventually, or just the story of every time um, African-American kids leave home, instead of you go to college or be safe or have fun, it's here's the five things you do to make sure you don't get killed or busted. What that does over 15, 16, 17, 18 years of, of a kid's life, how that shapes them, undeniably. <coughs> 
to be able to see the system and to know the system and to know what are you going to do is just reprehensible. Thank you. We're out of time, unfortunately. I do encourage you to, uh, you want to go back to that or her book, The New Jim Crow, or the documentary 13th. We'll give you lots more resources on that. Thank you.